You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Good morning. I hope you are all doing well. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Brian. I'm thankful for Pastor Josiah and and all he's doing with those kiddos as they head out. If you would like to read along with me, if you want to grab your Bible, we are going to be looking at the 23rd Psalm. We are in our our last sermon in the series, but let's start by reading the entire psalm together. So we'll be in the 23rd Psalm. If you're using one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you or around you, that'll be on page 483. Many of you by now, because we've been reading this for seven weeks now, probably have it fairly memorized, but let's go ahead and read it together. The 23rd Psalm says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we open to your word once again, feed us from it. Speak to us from it. Transform us by it. Move us in it and through it. Lord, we just seek that you would illuminate this to us. Holy Spirit, show us and teach us and guide us. And God, I pray now that your hand would be upon the preaching of your word, that this would be your message to us. And God, I pray for those who would hear this message, that you would open ears and open eyes, that we would receive it well in our soul and in our heart and think through it well and rightly in our minds. And Lord, by it, we'd be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are at the last verse. I've heard some of you actually speaking really highly of this series. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. But now we're coming to an end, and many of you would think, well, maybe now is the time for an overview recap of the whole thing, right? But if we did that, we would miss out on the richness of this last verse in the 23rd Psalm, and I I just don't want to do that. I want us to really see what's here, because this really does put a bow on the entire thing. Let me read this last verse again. And by the way, by now, I mean, how many of you honestly have that memorized by now? I mean, we've been going through this a lot. I've read it for seven weeks in a row. I just keep reading it. Here we go again. Time number eight. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. I'm going to take this in three parts. For you note takers, three parts. We're going to start with only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Listen to that. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Goodness and faithful love. There's absolutely nothing complicated in these words in the Hebrew. There's no hidden meaning. There's nothing special here. Ton means goodness. I mean, excuse me, tav means goodness. Hesed has a little bit broader range of meaning. It could mean mercy, faithfulness, love, or loving kindness. And you might see that in the translation you're reading from. I'm reading from the CSB here. If you were to do a word study of these words, 
you would find they get used all throughout the Old Testament. You'd find them in almost all the books of the Old Testament. And what you would discover is they're used just as we would use them in English. There's, There's really nothing out of the ordinary with these two words. They mean goodness and faithful love. Not complicated. What isn't quite as clear, and maybe in your translation you notice something a little bit different in in what I read, what's not quite as clear is if it's goodness and faithful love, or maybe in your translation it says your goodness and faithful love. I'm not too concerned if your should be there or not. Some people really make that a big deal. Is this goodness and faithful love from God? Is it God's goodness and faithful love? But here's the deal. In context, it's wonderful either way. I'm I'm really not too worried about it because either way, God is the provider. There isn't goodness in the world apart from God. There isn't faithful love apart from God. So biblically speaking, we just, we don't need to worry about it. We don't see these things outside of God. So either way, it's from God and of God. So don't get too wound up about that. What is a bit more confusing, for most of us anyway, maybe just those of us like in the United States, I don't know. What is a little bit more confusing is what's happening with this goodness and faithful love. These things, it says, will pursue me. That's a little confusing, is it not? How many of us have an attitude that if we're going to have goodness and faithful love, and if it's going to be from God, we have to be the pursuer, not the pursuee. We are the ones going after it, not the recipients of it. Whether we we mentally understand that or not, our attitude tends to demonstrate that we believe we have to work for it. Get after it. Make it happen. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So we go after these things. But what do you think might happen if we stopped running after these things? Instead, if we just just got still and we let God be God and we let God supply these things to us, if we allowed these things to chase after us, how God sees best fit, what would happen? What would happen if we really truly rested in the Lord? If we got real still, we looked to God for who he is, and then we just let goodness and faithful love come to us. What would that look like in your life? Now, we need to be aware. I think it's it's very fair and very safe to say at this point, for most of us, that might not look like what we would expect it to look like. We might think one thing, and, and it might look very different. David is the author of this psalm, and for many years of David's life, he was pursued by his enemies. He had people chasing him down. Early in his life, Saul, the the king, sent an army after David to kill him because God had now anointed David the king, but David wasn't yet on the throne. So for many years, he was in caves and on the run and had an entire army chasing him. Later in his life, David's own son was pursuing the throne, and if you're the king, and you have a son who wants to be the king, that means that his own son was trying to kill him. His own son was was chasing him down. David understood what it meant to be pursued by his enemies. But 
as we see in this psalm, as we see elsewhere, David came to see something in the midst of being pursued by his enemies that seemed to shape his entire life. It seemed to inform him of something wonderful and magnificent. He saw God's reality. What did he see? He saw that only goodness and faithful love were pursuing him. That's what he said. So somehow he came to see this particular truth. At the same time, his enemies were pursuing him. He he was suffering. He was enduring great hardships and trials. And yet, in the midst of it all, he saw this reality. It's a wonderful perspective when you can come to see, or especially when David came to see, that goodness and faithful love pursuing us from God is so much more magnificent than what we think is pursuing us and what we think is a problem. And then in the reality, David saw that in God's truth and in God's scenario, those who were pursuing him really weren't a problem like he thought. They really weren't the the chief issue because instead... God was supplying him with something that he wouldn't have had maybe had he not had those challenges. The challenges seemed to give him the unique perspective. It was the challenges that were supplied to him from God, who is sovereign, who allowed this to happen, who orchestrated these pieces so that David could see something he probably wouldn't have otherwise saw. He saw what we end up with is the 23rd Psalm. That's how he began to understand God, even amidst, among all the challenges and the struggles. He saw that God is a provider. He saw that God supplies protection. So in the challenges, he saw that. That seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Wait, you're the provider? Wait, this is where goodness and faithful love find me? What is this? It's paradoxical. It's difficult. And then he wrote this same paradoxical perspective into almost all the Psalms that he wrote. Where are you, Lord? You're so far from me. Yet I will worship you and you're so wonderful. My enemies chase me and yet you are my stronghold. Like you just see it over and over and over again. It seems to be that his challenges and hardships showed him what he might not have otherwise saw. We still sing these songs these psalms, we pray them and sing them and read them and learn from them 3,000 years later. His hardships were not for nothing. His perspective is remarkable. I don't know how well we would endure this kind of hardship in the way that he did. I don't know if we would see God in the way that he saw God. But what have you learned in your hardships? What has God showed you about himself in your greatest trials in life? Were they wasted? Was your perspective changed? Did something happen in those moments? And some of you might be pushing back on that question right now. You're saying, Pastor, are you crazy? I was wounded in the war. I can't seem to let it go. I was born without limbs. Are you kidding me? I was sexually abused as a child, and you're telling me I'm supposed to see God in that somehow? I realize it's a hard question. I do. Job knew it was a hard question. Paul knew it was a hard question. David knew. He faced these difficulties. 
And we have some contemporary Christians today that have faced great challenges. Among them are people like Daniel Ritchie, who is an armless preacher who, while turning the pages of his Bible with his foot, can proclaim the goodness of God in the midst of his challenges and how wonderful he is and to show people by the proclaimed and preached word his glory. Or how about many of you probably are familiar with Corey Tenboom? She was a Christian who was captured for protecting the Jewish people and put in a Nazi concentration camp and endured some horrible things. And yet, in all those things, she became one of the the top authors on the sovereignty and the providence of God and how he works and how wonderful he is that she never would have saw had she not been in a Nazi concentration camp. Or how about Joni Erickson Tata? Maybe you're familiar with her. She's a quadriplegic. She's paralyzed from the neck down. And she is an author and a speaker, and she's written some of the best books on how to glorify God in your suffering. And she experienced tremendous depression, and she said, God, bring her through that. And she said, look, God is my shepherd. He leads me. And she writes books that people are, are just, their lives are changed by. Would she have written those books if she were not a quadriplegic? God has used that suffering to help her help so many more. About the many, many men and women who were sexually abused as children. And yet still today, write about God's goodness. Write about his glory. Write about his wonder. Preach the word. Preach the power of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, or write songs and sing about the wonder and glory and amazing magnitude of God. Yet they went through such difficult and hard things. They provide for us an illustration, and they probably face tremendously difficult questions. They've had to struggle and wrestle through them, and for many of them, they were able to see God in a way they never would have been able to see before. Maybe you're wrestling with those kinds of questions. Maybe you have wrestled with those kinds of questions. David did. But look at what David saw. Look at the perspective he gained from it. So whether you've gone through something like this, great hardships in this way, or maybe you're going through those great hardships and you're wrestling with God now, we can probably all agree with David that it is a wonderful blessing to see goodness, and faithful love pursue us. It's there. We just need the perspective to see it. It's available to us. The truth is, though, maybe it just doesn't look like our expectations. And I'm going to put it another way that might hurt a little bit. Maybe it doesn't look like our demands. But it is there. This is true. And for God's people, his goodness and his faithful love pursue. They come after us. Let's move to the second part that I'd like to deal with. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. This is a fascinating study if you should do this because it seems that none of the commentators and None of the scholars can agree. I mean, you pick up 
eight books and you have 14 different opinions on what this could mean. That makes it a little bit difficult. I've, I've lumped these few things into maybe three things that the majority of them are arguing about what David is saying here. What is he trying to say? The first category of argument is that people are saying that David wants to be in the physical tabernacle. He wants to be there where the presence of God is. Uh, turn with me over to just a page or two over to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, 4 through 6, he says the same thing in the same language, but then he goes on to explain. Let me read it to you. David says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, and here's that language, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me under his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. In this psalm, David desires to dwell in the house of the Lord. But we have a greater explanation here. We have a few things. One, we have a picture of God's tabernacle, or another word for that is like the big tent. It's this huge tent before they had the temple and where uh, God would be worshipped, where God dwelled, where the sacrifices are made, and he wanted to be there. It says in verse 6, he wanted to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. It said he wanted to sing and make music there. He wanted to be in this place worshipping. He wanted to worship the Lord. Now, some scholars believe that that David wanted to be in and remain in the physical tent, but there are some different things going on in this. He also mentions the temple. Now, you might not have thought much about that, but in David's day, there wasn't a temple. There was a tent. And the temple eventually replaced the tent, and the temple was built by Solomon, David's son. So he made mention of this thing that didn't even exist, so what's happening there? Then he also mentions gazing on the beauty of the Lord. Now that sounds nice, and in our context, we have the access, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, for our sins to go and gaze upon the face of the Lord. But in David's day, anyone who looked upon the face of the Lord was a dead man. Oh, I have sinned, woe's me, I'm undone, I'm as toast. And only in very rare circumstances did anybody look upon the face of the Lord and live And then he mentions being set high on a rock. So all these things now suggest that this is poetic language, talking about something much more than just being in the physical tabernacle. So it's probably, as he's writing this, not that he's longing to be there, but maybe something else. So this brings me to the second category of argumentation. Maybe David's talking about being in heaven. Maybe this is about that. And the arguments go like this. Here's the first one. So those who believe this is about being in heaven, they look at this psalm, and then they look at David's life, and they say, man, David's life doesn't match this. David's life looks like suffering and hardship, and therefore this must be a future longing, a future projection of what it will be like when he's in heaven. He must be asking and hoping to be in heaven. Must be a future anticipation, not a present reality. 
That's how that argument goes. Another argument comes from Genesis 28, 17, which says that God's house, the house of the Lord we're talking about, God's house is heaven. Jacob has this amazing dream where angels are going up and down on a staircase or a ladder. They're coming from heaven down to earth, going back up again, and it's, wow, that's amazing. And then the Lord appears, and the Lord is standing next to him, tells him about this great promise, tells him about the land. And then when Jacob wakes up, he says, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than, here's the language, the house of God. But then it says this, this is the gate of heaven. That's Genesis 28, 17. This is the first time the house of God is ever mentioned. And so a lot of people say, oh, the house of God must mean heaven based on this verse. Of course, to get there, you have to neglect all the other places the house of God is mentioned in referring to a physical tabernacle or temple. But that's how the argument goes. Still another argument comes from Psalm 27, 4. We just read, David desires to be in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And so if we, if we read that, and we think that it's not that he's asking to be in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, but instead he's asking to actually be in the house of the Lord altogether, then what they're suggesting is he's not in the house of the Lord. He's asking to be in the house of the Lord, and so it must be that he's asking to be in heaven. That seems to be how that one goes. Or there's this whole third category, which I find myself a little more inclined to camp out in this category, but we'll get to where I think this lands in a minute. It could be that David desires to be among God's household. That gets a little bit confusing, but in the Old Testament, the household of God or the house of God was typically understood to be the physical temple or the physical tabernacle. And you say, wait a minute, that's the temple. How would we think that we'd call that God's house? Well, you remember when Jesus went into the temple, the physical temple, and while he was in there, he flipped over the tables and he said that, that his father's house, this is in Matthew 21, 13, his father's house is to be what? The house of prayer. His father's house, he's in the temple. And he says, but you've made it a den of thieves. He was quoting Isaiah 56. Now, he's talking about the temple. He says, it's my father's house. He's quoting Isaiah 56, which is about opening the temple up to all nations. So it could be a place of prayer for everybody. That would include the foreigner who wasn't even Jewish, who joined himself to the Lord. It would include the eunuch who who faithfully kept the Sabbath, who would otherwise be considered unclean and unable to go in. That prophetic statement in Isaiah 56 is talking about the temple, and Jesus tied it to his father's house. In that case, God will hear the prayers of all people and all nations who are willing to approach the Lord. And he will accept their sacrifices. The temple is open to all. And Jesus said the temple is his father's house, a place of prayer. But we learn a lot more about this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we learn that God's house is something really special. In many ways, it's a, it's a fulfillment of scripture, but it's a lot more complex than a single place. Right? Let's start with John 1.14. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. Became flesh and dwelt among us. Skenu is the word translated dwelt. That's the word there. And it means to pitch a tent. Or it means a tent. Or it means to tabernacle. To be in a, in a dwelling, in a tent. 
And so in the Greek Septuagint, the people translating the, the Hebrew Bible into Greek, went back to the Old Testament tabernacle. They used that same word. But here it says Jesus tabernacled among us. He took up residence with us. He tented with us. He went camping in our existence. The same is true of the temple. So the tabernacle and the temple are an illustration that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ when his presence was with us and he took up a tabernacle in our reality. And then to, to further that illustration, do you remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days? That's John 2.19. And it goes on to clarify when the people there misunderstood, John 20.21, 20, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in, in one way, the temple, the tabernacle, or the house of God seems to be pointing to Christ. But it also seems to point to those who are saved and become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. We are the temple of the living God. Christ is the house of God. But it's also all of us together. It's also all of us together. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 uh, through 22 is what we're going to look at. It's on page 1037. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Uh, based on the salvation that Christ provided for us by the, his shed blood on the cross, as we are radically transformed we then have something else happen to us. And that's kind of the backstory of what's happening here. We live differently. We, we are different. And then it says this in verse 19. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of, here it is, God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, now it's talking about all of us, the whole building being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Church, we are the temple of God. Amen. Built brick by brick, living stone by living stone. In fact, let's talk about those stones. 1 Peter 2, 4-5 through 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, are spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see that, church? We, together collectively, are also the temple of God. And by Jesus, our high priest, we can enter the house of God that's not necessarily us, not necessarily Christ, not necessarily the individual, but even another place outside of ourselves without fear because Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 gives us some instruction on how to do this. Let's turn there, page 1067. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us 
a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as we see the day approaching. We can enter into the tabernacle or the temple or the household of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made a way. So we have all these different things that would say this is the picture of the tabernacle or the temple of God. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Now, we need to be really careful. It's very important that we are, we are cautious about how we study the Bible in this way. We can't export the New Testament back into David's thinking in the Old Testament. He didn't have all this clarity. He didn't have all this teaching. He wasn't, he wasn't there. So he wasn't thinking of Jesus by name and all this stuff. And he, he didn't have all that. Now, he might have been thinking about some of it, but not in the same way that we are blessed to have. But I do think he did long for and desire something we learned from all that. There was something there. David longed for and desired to be in the house of the Lord which I believe is David's way of saying, in the presence of God. We see it in the temple and the tabernacle. We see it in heaven. We see it in God's people and his household. And we see it in Christ. That's what David was longing for, the very presence of God found in all those places. He longed for it. David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord, the presence of God, as long as I live. I believe that was David's heart. Even if he didn't fully understand what we get the blessing to see, he wanted it. He longed for it. We should want it. And we should long for it. And we have the blessing to see all that extra stuff that should help guide us right to where we can find it. This brings us to the last part of what I want to discuss this morning. My third part. I want you to notice something that David said about goodness and faithful love pursuing him. And I want you to notice something he said about dwelling in the house of the Lord. He indicated how long it would last. Did you notice that? There's, there's a follow-up clause on both of those statements. All the days of my life and as long as I live. Goodness and faithful love were going to pursue him all the days of his life and he was going to dwell in the house of the Lord as long as as he lived. The Bible teaches us that we will either have an eternal death or an eternal life. Okay, it's an unending existence. Every one of us, whether you know Jesus or not, heaven or hell, will exist from this point forward, never ending. Never ending. The unending death is punishment for sin. And it's punishment for our sins, which Romans 3.23 says we're all guilty of. But the good news is, Romans 6.23 says, while the wages of sin are death, listen to this, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And most of you know John 3.16, which says anyone who believes in Jesus, that is, 
what the Bible says about Jesus, who he is, how he reveals himself in truth, not some character made up Jesus, but who he really is. Anyone who believes in that can go from eternal death to eternal life and be with God forever, as David longs for. David wanted that. You can have it in Jesus Christ. It's available to all of us. I'd love to talk with you more about that. If you're not sure where you stand right now, in an eternal death or an eternal life, let's work it out. Let's talk. You can have it. The Bible also indicated that David was faithful, that David was a man after God's own heart, and that David was forgiven of his sin. This means that David most likely has eternal life. He's moved from this eternal existence and death to eternal life. I posted something on Realm. If you have not seen it, it's in the Eat This Scroll group. I'd encourage you to go look at that later. It's more detail about David's salvation. There's eternal life. There's eternal death. David seems to have eternal life, and therefore, goodness and faithful love are pursuing him. He is dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And here's the kicker. It started during his earthly lifetime. It's continuing now while David is in paradise with Jesus. And it will continue to go when David is reunited with his resurrected perfect body as Christ comes back and makes his return. And he will be with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. He will never be outside of the house of the Lord. Ever. Starting where it started and going unendingly. He will dwell in this house forever. Now, we don't usually have that kind of eternal perspective, do we? Most of us can barely think about the end of today. Most of us maybe are thinking about what's going to happen at the end of the year or maybe end of the next year. Very few of us have a really solid capability of longing and hoping even to retirement unless you're getting real close. It just feels far off and we just don't, think about it. And we certainly don't think about this eternal perspective of forever in eternity with Jesus our Lord. Being in the presence of God is not just something you get to have now for a little while, nor is it something you only get in heaven. It's it's both. It's now and growing and improving and getting better and better and better and better and better in your life as you're being sanctified, as you're knowing Him more, as your life is being conformed to His life and your will to His mind, and you're moving along with Jesus, you have more and more and more of Him until you pass from this side of eternity into the next and you you breathe your last here and you breathe your first there and you're with Jesus growing and knowing Him and with Him More and more and more. Goodness and faithful love will pursue God's people. And we will be in the presence of God, even now, and more so as we move forward forever. Forever. And it starts right now. Imagine what your life would look like If you were to gain a stronger, biblical, eternal perspective, understanding how momentary this life is, just a blip in the scope of all eternity, 
Imagine how that would shape the way you think about your current problems. David may have had those enemies chasing him for as many as 14 years, homeless, on the run from an entire army. 14 years. We read about it in about a page and a half. Oh, that was nice. We can barely handle that someone ate the lunch in the fridge that we wrote our name on. Right? We're not thinking eternally. We're larger picture. Beyond retirement. Beyond next year. What would your life look like if you had a better biblical eternal perspective? Imagine what would happen if today you started seeing God's provision and God's protection in your life right now for what it really is and continue to see that eternally. What would be different in your thoughts? What would be different in your actions? Certainly should change the way you view politics. It certainly should change the way you view the workplace and your job, and maybe the next one that's coming. It certainly should change the way you view retirement. It should change the way you view money. It should change the way you view the opposite sex. It should change the way you view your family. Not saying any of these things are bad, but with an eternal perspective, they can be seen rightly as God would have you to see them. It should change the way you see your service here or any other church you end up at at any point in your life. It should change the way you view your brothers and sisters in Christ who are the very stones of the temple of God where you can experience His presence. It should change the way you view all of this from now and into eternity forever. What would your actions look like if you believed that? If you really believed with this eternal perspective? That goodness and faithful love were pursuing you. That you're in the house of the Lord forever. What would change? How would your thinking be different? How would your worship be different? How would your service be different? What would happen if you gain this kind of perspective through your hardships like David did, look what happened to David. Look what happened to Paul. What would that look like for you? They were just mere men. No different than us. But maybe with a clearer perspective of who God really is and what God is really doing. What would change for you? Now, how do we gain that perspective? Well, luckily, we can turn to the Psalms again. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which I believe is, a, is an overview of all the book of the Psalms, says this, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. You want to gain this perspective? Meditate on God and his instruction, his word, day and night. And when we do this, when we're thinking on it, when we're studying it, when we're working on it, we too will come to the point where we can truly say, only goodness and faithful love 
will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Would you pray with me? God, I am so sorry for how short-sighted we are. How I am. I am short-sighted, Lord. I don't have the eternal perspective that I think you, you showed David and I think you showed Paul. And maybe, Lord, suffering and hardship comes to show us that perspective. Lord, maybe there are trials coming so that we would see you for who you really are because we just can't seem to get past such trivial and short things. Stuff in the now. Savings accounts and retirement plans and politics and any of the other stuff. God, I hope that we could see with an eternal perspective from your word rather than from trial and hardship, God. But, but I do ask that if you should bring trial and hardship, we would see you. We would gain this perspective. We would understand and be blessed by it. And I pray that we would clearly see goodness and faithful love pursuing us. And anything that we think is pursuing us, Lord, would seem so insignificant in light of you, our good shepherd. God, I thank you for this psalm. Lord, for those of us who struggle to read on a regular basis and, and open your word, let us start by just meditating on this psalm every day, if that's what we need. Lord, it just takes a minute to read. Maybe two minutes. I think we can find two minutes. God, I ask that you would drive each and every one of us into your word. Lord, for some of us, it might be to read the Bible cover to cover. Maybe we've never done that or we need to do it again. For some of us, it might be to meditate on one verse over and over each day. For, for others, it might be camping out in the Psalms or John or some other part of the Bible. God, whatever it is, Lord, move us to meditate on your word day and night. God, let us see. Let us have this perspective. And God, I pray, I beg that it would be without the suffering, but I know that you've also ordained the suffering in these many examples. And so let us see our suffering or our past suffering in the perspective that you've made available to us. Open our eyes to it. And God, I pray for those who are suffering that you would alleviate their pain and their hardships and their challenges and the questions that you would bring healing, that you would bring life. God, that you would bring a flourishing in who you are, that we, Lord, would be like these witnesses, like Job, like Paul, like David, like Corey Tenboom and Daniel Ritchie, Joni Erickson Tata, and many, many, many others, Lord. May we be witnesses for who you are because of how you've opened our eyes to see how good you truly are, our good shepherd. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.